0: Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. We maintain the peace through our strength. Weakness only invites aggression. Trust but verify. Well, I've said it before and I'll say it again. America's best days are yet to come. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny.
1: This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C.
0: In this episode, Roger is joined by British historian Daniel Collins. Collins directed U.S. research for Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher's authorized biography. He also co-wrote a book about Thatcher's tenure titled Britain Under Thatcher and a book about the British ambassador's residence, in Washington, D.C., titled The Architecture of Diplomacy. Roger and Daniel discuss President Reagan and Prime Minister Thatcher's relationship, their 1981 dinner at the British Embassy in D.C., the Falklands and Grenada conflicts, and the portrayals of Margaret Thatcher in The Crown and the Iron Lady. If you enjoyed the conversation, remember to subscribe to Reaganism wherever you listen to podcasts, and leave us a five-star review. Thanks for listening.
1: Daniel Collings, welcome to Reaganism. Thank you, it's a
2: real pleasure to be here.
1: Well, uh, for our U.S. listening audience, they may not know about your background. Uh, You're a political historian and directed U.S. research for Margaret Thatcher's authorized biography, Um, and you've co-wrote books about the British ambassador's residence here in Washington, D.C., uh, and about Prime Minister Thatcher's tenure. Pretty interesting, highly relevant to uh, the Reagan Institute because of that of course, special relationship between President Reagan and Prime Minister Sir Thatcher. Tell us a little more about
2: yourself and how did you get into all this? <laughs> well, th- thanks, Roger. Yes, it seems a long time ago now that, uh, that I got into all this. It's, um, it really goes back to the fact, I think, that you know, I was a child of the 80s, so I was growing up and, and for a good uh, quarter of my life, all I knew was Mrs. Thatcher as, as Prime Minister. It was quite uh, an important time. I remember it very well because the day that she left office, or the day that she agreed to leave office, which was November the 22nd, 1990, a Thursday. I remember it because I was in school. I was in a science lesson, science class. And all of a sudden there was a knock on the door. The door opened and the deputy headmaster put his head around the door and all he said was, she's gone. <laughs> absolute pandemonium broke out in the class we were we were about 11 12 year olds and everyone just started screaming and yelling and shouting and they had to end, end the class for the day we suspended school at that point and i think it's very memorable to me but the point about it is that she was such a figure that provoked such strong reactions one way or the other that you couldn't you couldn't really be neutral about it or have no opinion you had to engage one way or the other and i think that was really the, the beginning of my engagement with her Well, Daniel, when all the students
1: in the classroom started rejoicing uh, and celebrating, tell me you sat at your desk
2: and you had a scowl or a frown or you started (laughs) tearing in disappointment. No, of course, I I sat back as an impartial historian and did a very careful analysis.
1: At the ripe old age of 11 or 12 years old. Okay, well, I wouldn't expect anything less. Let's go to um, a more modern, recent treatment of... Prime Minister Thatcher uh, i'm sure a lot of our listeners and viewers have seen the Iron Lady, which came out in two thousand and eleven. Uh, many of, are watching the Crown and uh, saw the treatment of Margaret Thatcher there uh, let 's start with the Iron Lady. Yep. my view i didn't like it i don 't like how they told the story of this remarkable woman through the perspective of kind of the end of her life suffering, obviously with dementia alzheimer's. Uh, and really not allowing you to appreciate what she did during the height of her career, but only a scene through the lens of someone who clearly his health was
2: failing. Yes. Uh, Roger, I I rather agree with you on that. I think it's a great pity that they decided to make that movie, A, while Mrs. Thatcher was still alive, uh, and B, that they chose to focus it in the way that that you described. Um, That said, I think that Meryl Streep did an uncannily good job of capturing the older Mrs. Thatcher, the suffering Mrs. Thatcher, and I think that, certainly for those who knew her well, was remarkable and some people wondered quite how she'd managed to uh, pick it up so well. I think she perhaps did a less good job and a slightly more stereotypical job of Mrs. Thatcher in office as Prime Minister. Uh, I mean, it wasn't bad, but there was—it wasn't quite as nuanced and as effective as the, as the latest.
1: All right, well, there we go. The critics' take on Iron Lady. Let's move to the Crown. Um, there also, I mean, you're right that Th- Thatcher uh, elicits this reaction, this emotional reaction, one way or the other. That certainly came across during the Crown. But both the people and the Queen seem to be uh, on the side of a negative reaction. The way it was portrayed in the Crown. Do you think that yeah. was a uh, well?
2: No, again, I mean, the thing with the crown is that um, one has to be very careful not to take it too literally, um, because the factual element, while there are some factual elements, the factual elements are far from complete, and in places are, are, are simply not correct. And I think you mentioned the queen, it's a good example, because you can see that in the interaction that's portrayed there between Mrs. Thatcher and the queen. The problem with all these Uh, these films and these programs that are made about the Queen and Mrs Thatcher is that they always want to have Mrs Thatcher and the Queen at each other's throats. They want to have Mrs Thatcher, the strong leader, lecturing the Queen. And Mrs Thatcher, of course, was was no stranger to lecturing people. She was quite happy to do that. But perhaps the one person who she never lectured was the Queen. And the reason was that she simply had too much respect and her social social standing was so different that she was always much more anxious and worried that she'd say the wrong thing when she was around the Queen. And to the extent of was she wearing the right clothes? Were her clothes going to clash with the queen? She was always very worried about these things. So the idea that she would stand down, how would the queen, what for? It's just not what happened. So I think I think that was a bit.
1: So to the relationship between the queen and the prime minister, Prime Minister Thatcher, clear that the prime minister had great respect and reverence for the queen as, uh, as was kind of captured in what you just said, did the queen share that respect? That's what seems to come across as not being the case. Perhaps they looked down upon her, frowned upon her being the daughter of a grocer.
2: Again, I think that's certainly the betrayal. And, you know, there's always, there's often a a kernel of truth in some of these betrayals, but I think that it's not fair to say that the Queen didn't, Uh, expect the Prime Minister or didn't expect Mrs. Thatcher, she certainly disagreed with her on some issues. And there was some trouble over South Africa, where the Queen took a broader view, her being the head of the Commonwealth, and having to think about all the nations of the Commonwealth and not just the United Kingdom. But the fact is that Mrs. Thatcher uh, and the Queen did have a constructive relationship. And the the degree of the Queen's respect for Mrs. Thatcher, I think, could be seen in her behaviour certainly out of office when she attended several of Mrs. Thatcher's birthday parties which was unknown. And then very significantly during her funeral uh, when the queen herself attended Mrs. Thatcher's funeral um, and behind the scenes made sure that uh, Mrs. Thatcher got the respect that she deserved in the way that the funeral was organized. So I think there was quite a lot there that that was telling. So one way before we jump into Reagan and Thatcher uh, in
1: terms of Thatcher enthusiasts, curiosity and questions. I once had a conversation with an American expat in, in London, uh, who's a Reagan enthusiast and a Thatcher enthusiast. And, and this person's view was Reagan gets his due in the United States. Here we have the Reagan Institute, we have the Reagan Library. He's highly celebrated president, not just amongst Republicans, Democrats alike. This individual felt that Thatcher does not get her due in England and the United Kingdom more broadly. Now, do you agree with that? Is she not getting her due for all of her accomplishments, which we'll talk about just a bit here?
2: Yes, I, I think there is something There is something to that. The The degree to which um, President Reagan became uh, lionized by large quantities of the country, large portions of the country here in the United States, was not perhaps matched, matched in the UK the degree to which Mrs. Thatcher became um, lionized. And part of the reason for that, I think, is that in the UK, there's a very strong... Um, not necessarily large, but very vocal minority of people who really, really didn't like Mrs. Thatcher. Um, and sometimes during the time of the funeral, the amount of airtime they got may perhaps have been a little disproportionate to, to the sort of um, strength of their uh, follow-up. Right. Let's, let's talk a little bit about this Reagan-Thatcher
1: relationship. In a moment, I want to focus on a, a very important dinner that took place, at the start of the Reagan administration in Washington, D.C., at the British Embassy. Uh, but before we do, Look at the, the the relationship from before. When did they first meet? How did they get to know each other? Obviously, uh, you don't have to know much about either to know that politically they were in sync. Uh, obviously, and one in, in in England, one in the United States, coming from different worlds. Hollywood actor, you know, a uh, uh, grocer's daughter, business, you know, uh, uh, mother, a uh, spouse. When did they kind of uh, develop the relationship, and, and how did it evolve? prior to
2: Reagan's ascendance
1: to the presidency when, of course, uh, Thatcher was already-
2: Yeah, yes, Roger. Well, I'm glad you raised this because it's really a very important point and it's worth taking just a little bit of time to understand how it came about and what that meant for the future of the relationship. I think the point is that it was a relationship that was forged in adversity um, and that made it perhaps ultimately a stronger relationship than it might otherwise have been. We have to go back to 1975 uh, which is when the, first, the two first met. And it was April 1975. Uh, Ronald Reagan, at that point, Governor Reagan, had uh, completed his time as Governor of California. Uh, but Mrs. Thatcher had just become uh, leader of the Conservative Party, but was very much not Prime Minister. She was elected leader in February 1975, who was a Labour government. And what happened was, Reagan was eager to burnish his foreign policy credential, pairing for his run for the 1976 nomination. And so he decided to accept an invitation to the Pilgrim Society in, the, in London to address them. And he was discussing this with his kitchen cabinet. Um, and one of the members of his kitchen cabinet was a man named Justin Dart. And Justin Dart happened to own a Tupperware company, which had a good presence in the UK. And he happened to have met Mrs. Thatcher. And as soon as Reagan talked about coming over to the UK to address the Pilgrim Society, Justin Dart said, well, what about Mrs. Thatcher? She's absolutely terrific. You're going to love her. You've got to meet her. And so um, Reagan's age reached out to Mrs. Thatcher and said, well, we come? We're coming. Governor Reagan, he'd love to meet you. Uh, well,
0: until I
1: goes- interrupt you, it wasn't actually someone who, who recognized there was this deep ideological kind of convergence that resulted in Reagan and Thatcher meeting in 75. It was just a kitchen cabinet person that had a connection, a result of his Tupperware business, that brought
2: <laughs> them together. That, that was the spark for it. Now, obviously, they they then understood quite rapidly that they were on the same page and staff worked that out. But that was the spark for it. Absolutely. Yeah, that's interesting. And so Reagan came over and had this agreement to meet with Mrs. Thatcher. But what's quite interesting and, and very important, actually, is the relationship is that Reagan also wished to meet um, the government, the British government, as, as you would do, a visiting dignity. Um, so he asked if he could meet the Prime Minister, the Labour Prime Minister, Harold Wilson at the time. Um, but the Labour government uh, essentially said no um, and didn't even send him to the Foreign Secretary. They sent him to a very low Foreign Office minister called Roy Hatters uh, for a sort of a 20 minute meeting uh, and, and and basically dismissed him out of hand. And that was a, in great contrast to the very great care that Mrs Thatcher took to receive him. But from the very start, there's this um, sort of possibility from the establishment theme, which Thatcher felt and Ronald Reagan felt as well. And so they began to be bound together by this, this particular theme. Was
1: it not protocol at the time for uh, the government, you know, in this case Harold Wilson, not to meet with uh, a someone who's going to challenge, and I think it was probably 1975, there's a lot of speculation would be challenging or was challenging Gerald Ford uh, for uh, the presidency, or, or truly this was just. Uh, Sorry. Go ahead.
2: I don't think it was, it wasn't protocol to avoid such meetings. Now I think asking to meet with the prime minister may have been a little bit optimistic, but I think meeting with the foreign secretary would have been perfectly in line with, with other uh, precedents, but they chose not to do that. So um, he's, he, Ronald Reagan had very limited time with, with Roy Hattersley. By contrast, he came to see Mrs. Thatcher, April the 9th it was, uh, 1975. Mrs. Thatcher was waiting in her small wood paneled office in the House of Commons. In came uh, Ronald Reagan, um, and they sat down, mm-hmm. and from the moment they sat down, they just started to talk. And for some reason, from the very beginning, they clicked. And it was partly a personal thing. Mm-hmm. Mrs. Thatcher was always um, very interested and um, attracted to sort of Hollywood types, people who she felt uh, were, were polished and people who she felt uh, she could she could look up to in that sense. And well, I think so she didn't funny. view
1: him as a, a lightweight Hollywood figure. No. She actually no. came into it thinking there may be something there that she'd be interested in.
2: Yes, she did, because her staff had briefed her on, on his views uh, by that stage. And obviously she had to meet him herself. But they soon fell in very quickly to a discussion of the issues. They didn't waste too much time on small talk. Mrs. Thatcher was no one for spending any time at all on small talk. She liked to get straight into the issue. And, and she did. And, and so it was questions of the size of government. It was questions of lower taxes. It was all the familiar themes that you'd expect. And of course, anti-communism came into it very early on. They talked a lot about that. And there was a meeting that was scheduled for about half an hour and he went on for almost two hours. At the time, uh, Ronald Reagan was giving radio addresses, uh, regular radio addresses, to, you know, keep, keep the word out and, and keep his supporters um, happy. And he then chose to make his meeting with Margaret Thatcher one of uh, the subjects of one of his radio addresses, and he paid a very warm, wholesome tribute to her as a woman of uh, poise, strength, and conviction. He called her a conservative's conservative. Um, and so it was clear from this very early stage that he was, he was, he was very much concerned. So Reagan comes <laughs> back from the UK in
1: 1975 and he uh, does his next installment of his weekly radio address uh, and you know, has one where he, he, he praises Thatcher as a conservative conservative. Fast right. forward to 1978,
2: they meet again. Tell us about that session. Absolutely, now they meet again. This is also an interesting meeting because by this stage, of course, um, Ronald Reagan was a more established figure, having, won, having run for the nomination in 76 and was better known. So once again, he, he goes to the government, this is still a Labour government, Jim Callaghan's government, now Jim Callaghan is Prime Minister, and he asked to meet with the Prime Minister. And what happens? Once again, no, no, he couldn't do this. But this time, this time, at least to the government's credit, um, they send him off to see the Foreign Secretary, David Owen. Um, but when he gets to the Foreign Office, they haven't bothered to leave anyone out to meet him, there's no welcoming party, there's no nothing, so he checks in at the front desk and he's essentially told, well go on upstairs, go along the corridor, you'll find the office somewhere at the end of that corridor, and knock on the door, sort of thing, which is not exactly the treatment he, he was expected or indeed due. Um, so this anti-establishment theme continues and what happens actually at the end of the meeting is he has a, a not very uh, productive meeting, shall we say, with David and the foreign secretary, they don't really agree on very much and it doesn't last very long, but then he leaves and he's heading out and he has a much more productive meeting with one of the catering staff, or as they were then called, the tea lady. Um, mm-hmm. And this tea lady comes up to uh, Governor Reagan, you know, very sheepishly and approaches him, sort of nervous, and says, Governor Reagan? He says, yes. Yeah. She Governor Reagan, from Hollywood? He says, yes. Yeah. And she says, Oh, tell us about King's Row. How did you lose your legs? <laughs>
1: So he was more popular, perhaps, in the foreign
2: uh, office than the foreign secretary, huh? Absolutely, yeah, and and of course he loved it. So he spent some time, more time than more time in the foreign. Did, secretary. did the woman get a, a? Was she the subject of radio address upon his return, or or, or didn't quite rank? No, I don't think she quite she quite made it. But um, after that was when uh, Governor Reagan went to saw Mrs Thatcher again, uh, and it was it was really just a continuation of, of the conversation they had in '75, because. Although they'd had such a good conversation in 75 and did the same in 78, they weren't actually personally in contact between those two years or indeed subsequently. Now, um, the staff, Reagan's staff, did send over a number of his speeches um, and comments for Mrs. Thatcher to see. And there was some reciprocation, but it wasn't like a sort of let me call you up every, every month or something in chat type of relationship. It was more distant from afar, which was entirely appropriate. But that, that was the stage bit at that stage. When they met in
1: 1978,
2: Hmm. take us back to England
1: at the time, was it pretty clear that Margaret Thatcher would ascend to the premiership, or when Reagan met with her in 78, it still appeared as if she would be in the minority in the opposition?
2: Her fortunes were certainly improving by 78, partly because the parliamentary majority that the Callaghan government enjoyed was rapidly dwindling uh, down and down and down, and once that Um, diminished sufficiently, she was able to win a vote of no confidence, which is what precipitated the 1979 election. But by the time Reagan saw her, her ascent was by no means assured, but it was looking a little bit more likely than 75. And one of the reasons for that was that she had actually managed to retain her position as party leader from 75 to 78, which was quite an achievement, because when she was first elected, this Conservative Party, which was (laughs) almost exclusively men, And almost exclusively, not exclusively, but largely establishment men had somehow found itself with this woman leader. Um, And there was a lot, there was a strong feeling at the time that she wasn't going to last. And that was a view echoed by Henry Kissinger over here talking to President Ford, who told Ford at the time, I don't think that Margaret Thatcher will last. Um, But of course she did. And the fact that she survived those three years was very significant and helped propel her um, on the way to becoming prime minister, which she did in 79. Irony, of course, Kissinger did not last and Thatcher did um,
1: from that conversation between Secretary of State Kissinger and President Ford. I, I want to jump now to uh, the article you wrote in March. Uh, and it was about 40 years, the 40th anniversary of a dinner quite unique hosted by uh, the British Embassy, the uh, ambassador to the United States um, for Uh, President Reagan, which followed uh, a dinner the previous night, uh, banquet reception, honoring uh, Prime Minister Thatcher visiting the White House. Um, Tell us about that dinner and why was it the subject of an article? Um, Usually the workings or dinners and and events at embassies are are not the subject uh, of historians. And if historians do focus on it, they're perhaps trying to figure out what was going on behind the scenes, cables, communications between an ambassador and a head of state. This, of course, you focused on
2: the dinner itself. Why was it important and relevant? Absolutely. Yeah, Roger, it's a great question. The thing about this dinner is that, in a sense, it was a continuation of the theme we've already been talking about. And in some senses, this theme culminated with this dinner. And the theme really was the rejection by the establishment of both Mrs. Thatcher and Ronald Reagan to some degree. And the reason I say that is as follows. So this dinner took place in 1981 um, and it took place uh, shortly after President Reagan had been inaugurated. Um, So it was very early on, Mrs. Thatcher got a great early visit in to see President Reagan. And the reason it's so significant is that Mrs. Thatcher and her ambassador, Nico Henderson, were determined to have President Reagan come to the embassy and have dinner with her. And this was something that never happened, or very, very rarely happened did the presidents themselves. Sure, a head of state would
1: go essentially to sovereign territory in this case, on the grounds of, of, of another embassy. I'm not aware, certainly recent memory of any president doing that. So quite exceptional. And the ambassador uh, perhaps was uh, pretty industrious uh, getting that set up, not something that the White House thought was appropriate, certainly the protocol police did not want to have that happen, right, Daniel?
2: Exactly, exactly. I mean, this was the whole, uh, the shock to the, to the establishment that, oh my goodness, this is not done. Presidents do not go to embassies. And if he goes to this one, then does he have to go to the French? Does he have to go to the Germans? Does he have to go to goodness knows where? Um, but President Reagan, and, and to his credit, his national security advisor, Richard Allen, um, actually agreed with Mrs. Thatcher, they thought the relationship with her was already sufficiently special, and this was only weeks after President Reagan had been inaugurated. But he wanted to demonstrate it. He wanted, in Richard Allen's words, he wanted to dramatize the meeting of minds. And there was no better way, really, of dramatizing the meeting of minds than actually going to this this embassy and standing on foreign soil. I want to focus on this
1: point here for a second because, you know dramatizing it, or you have a great quote, novelty is politically useful in its own right, right? And this was clearly something unprecedented, the protocol police didn't want, yet the president, his national security advisor, Richard Allen, all saw this as an opportunity. And I think it would be useful maybe if you could expand about why was it so important to highlight this special relationship at this time? What was going on, particularly in the context of the Cold War, particularly in the way that Reagan and Thatcher are perceived that them locking arms and sharing uh, these, these kind of u- unique moment to highlight uh, what Margaret Thatcher referred to as this unusual philosophy was politically
2: beneficial for both. Absolutely, yes that's absolutely right and I think the, the important context that we have to remember here is that um, in the early 80s when President Reagan was first uh, became president and Mrs. Thatcher was prime minister, they in a sense cut a lonely figure on the world stage because there were a number of other leaders of major industrial democracies who were very much on the left, one thinks of President Mitterrand um, or Trudeau. Uh, And these, therefore, it was important that these two leaders worked in lockstep to advance their views and agenda, which didn't necessarily match the views and agenda of a number of of their peers on the world stage. And this wasn't just true in international relations, but this was also true in domestic affairs and domestic policy. And the backdrop for Mrs. Thatcher's visit was that... At home, the Bush economy was having a terrible time and she was um, addressing economic problems, but she was not yet through the worst of it. So the fact for her that President Reagan, who was just coming into office and preparing to try and implement some of the same remedies, not exactly the same, but similar remedies, the fact that he was willing to um, embrace her, as it were, publicly, was highly significant for for both of their sort of shared ideological beliefs. I wanna delve in more on that
1: and talk about this kinship here, this, this kind of meeting of the minds. You know, preparing for this and, and reading that article made me think of something that happened between President Trump and uh, Prime Minister Johnson. It's obviously not apples to apples. History doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. You know, there, there is this kind of phenomenon where world leaders are looking for people they can team up with and, and, and share ideology and kind of lock arms, especially when there are there, you know, it isn't an established path. Right. Um, and in Reagan's time, you, know, you mentioned, you know, Iran or Trudeau, you know, uh, they, they had a different approach to free market, to uh, the Cold War. Uh, same here. Um, was that something you saw kind of a parallel with with Trump and, and Johnson certainly had this with Brexit and and this kind of they crossed a pond. They're, they're playing and riffing off each other. Yeah, I
2: right I- To make that parallel. There is a parallel there, yes, but I, I think that, um, as we've discussed, I guess uh, already the the background to the relationship between Mrs. Thatcher and Ronald Reagan was rather different to the background to the relationship between President Trump and Boris Johnson because they hadn't had that time uh, together, those years, to, to build up and work against uh, everything else that was going on in a way that, that, that Thatcher and, and Reagan did. So I push back a little bit on that, but I I, I do think that. Teaming up on the international stage, that is absolutely something that is very important. And it's certainly something that Thatcher and Reagan did and had to do. And I know that at um, what the early G7, the 1981 G7, um, President Reagan was, you know, the, I remember Mike Deaver told me he was he very much felt like he was the quote, new kid on the block um, there. Uh, and people like, uh, particularly, Trudeau were not always the most respectful, shall we say, of uh, President Reagan and, uh, and his leadership. Uh, and Mrs. Thatcher was there. She was there, saying, oh, "Excuse me, we haven't quite finished discussing this, Pierre." Uh, and she stood up for President Reagan and helped President Reagan, you know, find his feet and and get get off the ropes and 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 lead. And so I think that pairing was so important, and yeah, it does continue to be important today.
1: Yeah, heads of state need to find people that they could they can connect with and work with in that in that dynamic. Absolutely. Um, you know, just going back to that dinner which you documented, uh, the Reagan Thatcher dinner, and. and um, 1981 at the British Embassy, so unique and, uh, and unusual. The ambassador, when I was, played such an unusual role. Do you think today, someone who has studied and studies the, the role of an embassy, the history on the uh, British Embassy in Washington, D.C., do ambassadors play as a significant role today as uh, the UK ambassador did in 1981?
2: I think that's an interesting question. I think A lot has changed, obviously, since uh, the the 1980s. Um, And One of the things that has changed is the great prevalence of technology and communication. And I think that has altered the role of the ambassador to quite some degree. Because previously, it would take a little while for communications to come through. And ambassadors were expected to act rather more on the spot. Not completely, but rather more than they do today. It's so easy uh, to check by email or, or cell phone or whatever it is with London to see what's going on, but I think that has eroded their their ability to act and their autonomy to some, to some degree. I think in the case of uh, Nico Henderson, who's the ambassador we're talking about here from 1979 through to 82 is when he served as ambassador. He was a particularly special case because he was a very gifted individual. He was actually brought out of retirement as a senior diplomat by Mrs. Thatcher to come and be ambassador to the United States. And he, he did a particularly good job because he gave the impression of being, he, he was, his 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 clothes were always very uh, messy and ruffled, and his hair was was all over the place. And and people tended to underestimate. What did Barbara <laughs> Bush say about him? She said he resembled an unmade bed. Yeah, not back. a compliment for a diplomat. Uh, uh, but inside that unmade bed, or inside that ruffled uh, um, appearance, was a steel trap mind. Um, and there's no doubt that Henderson was extremely canny, and that was one of the reasons why he was able to get uh, Reagan to come to the embassy. Because he took advantage of the new administration's... um, Do you think the Soviets were paying attention to that dinner? I think the Soviets were paying attention to everything, um, particularly early on uh, in in the Reagan administration, and they were paying attention to Mrs. Thatcher. The Soviets were somewhat obsessed with Mrs. Thatcher, as you know, given that they were the ones who gave her her moniker, the Iron Lady, uh, way back in 1976. Um, And so, yes, I think they were paying attention to that.
1: One other thing that happened at the dinner, and then I want to go on to major events during uh, the Reagan presidency, and and Prime Minister Thatcher's time in office. Wine. Figured heavily in conversation, you feature this. They brought President Reagan's
2: favorite California uh, wine. Tell us about that for our wine. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it, was, it was another shrew thing. The thing about the dinner is that Henderson and his wife uh, were absolutely aware of how important it was. And so they were determined to leave absolutely no detail to chance, and that included wine. And they were aware, as not a lot of people were, I suppose, at that point, certainly in Britain, that President Reagan had quite an interest in wine from his time as governor of California. Uh, and he was rather fond of a number of uh, red Cabernets. Um, and they discovered that this uh, Roman Derby, I think it was a 1974 Cabernet uh, Sauvignon, was one of his favorites. And so, yeah, they, they took they took the trouble of actually going to find it and purchasing enough and bringing it over and sticking it in the cellar. And that led to this wonderful conversation which Nico Henderson recalls in his diary when he was standing alone with President Reagan and for a moment, he wasn't sure what to say. um, And all of a sudden they struck up this conversation about the wine they were drinking and President Reagan at the time um, suggested that he thought California vintners would benefit from laying down their wine for longer. And I think probably anyone who enjoys California wine today would say he was absolutely right. (laughs) That's great. All right, let's
1: move on to uh, some of the key events during the Reagan presidency. We'll start first with the Falklands War. That's obviously uh, the most significant security military event uh, during Prime Minister Thatcher's time in office. Uh, The U.S. uh, was somewhat mixed about supporting the effort, but ultimately uh, did not stand in the way it was supportive. U.S. give enough, provide enough material uh, to support the British effort? (laughs)
2: <laughs> well, um, the interesting about about the material that was provided, as you highlight there, is that that happened from the very the very beginning. Even when the diplomacy was still ongoing, even when uh, we, there was talk about an even handed approach, even when Al Haig was flying desperately between London and Buenos Aires trying to negotiate a solution, the Pentagon and a select group in the Pentagon, with the approval of Caspar Weinberger, the uh, Secretary of Defense. Were already providing material to Britain, and it was. Absolutely- so this, this was somewhat of
1: a, yeah, somewhat of a self-serving question because I'm highlighting my my father's role. Dove who was working with Pastor <laughs> Weinberger at the time, uh, who absolutely was supporting uh, that effort to try to get material as Secretary of State Hague was trying to work diplomacy and prevent the conflict. But the historian's view is that, yes, the U.S. supported from the
2: beginning. That's what I think I heard you say. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. The material, very very significant. But I will add that Mrs. Thatcher was, um, in the beginning, not so well informed. She didn't know exactly all the details that were going on, particularly with the material that was being su- supplied. So she focused on what Haig was doing. And she was actually quite disappointed early on with the attitude from the United States. Because to her mind, here was this, Example of unprovoked aggression against an undefended, essentially island, and why then was the United States not offering full support for this violation of British sovereignty? And of course, the answer is that it was complicated, and partly the fact that the United States did not recognize British sovereignty over the Falkland
1: Islands. UN- U.S. did not recognize British sovereignty over the Falklands was, was was
2: a bit of an issue, huh? Yeah, that was a bit of a, a bit of an issue. Um, but um, in the end it was interesting because President Reagan, one of the first things he, when he sat down, actually was April the 7th, at this national security planning group, it was the group that was overseeing the forefront, and they had to decide how they were going to react, what they were going to do Reagan said to them, look first priority is we've got to quote, get these two brawlers out of the barroom, that's what he said but then he said, but first priority, if we can't reach a solution, is we side with the."
1: side with them and, and of course um having support of casper weinberger during the reagan administration probably left you better off than having the support of al haig given the tenure of each al haig not being there for long as secretary of state weinberger last for almost the entire Absolutely.
2: two terms and um, of course and, and ultimately uh weinberger receiving an honorary knighthood um partly uh, almost largely for his services during the Falklands. so he was exactly. right. Uh, there's
1: actually a, a nice treatment of the Hague Thatcher meeting uh, in the Iron Lady. Um, so yeah. as we, I was panning it at the outset, Daniel, do you think that uh, exchange where Thatcher puts Hague in his place uh, is uh,
2: correct or mostly correct? Um, I think that is actually, in essence, that is correct. The tone is right. She, she was patient at the beginning for a bit. But then by the end, I mean, a, a week or so into the Hague shuttle, where it wasn't really going anywhere, she became quite frustrated with Al Hague, particularly when he kept coming back and saying, oh, I've negotiated another compromise. Can you come with me on this compromise as well, Margaret? And in the end, she, she sort of, she kept saying yes, but she didn't want to say yes. And so because the Argentines never said yes to the compromises as well, she was OK. But she was a little worried that Al, at one point, he would push her to a compromise that she didn't want to accept. So, yes, yeah, she, she, was, she was quite hostile. You know, in private, she would say, Al Haig, and under her breath, she would say, Al Haig, the devil. <laughs> All right. So, that's the Falklands. Um,
1: um, you know, that part of the world would kind of create a bit of uh, tension between the United States and, and the United Kingdom. Uh, next up is 1983 in Grenada. Mm. Um, we have a, sh- a clip here, um, which we'll play in just a moment uh, once you set it up. Uh, but this is when uh, the United States takes action in Grenada. Um, tell us what, what, how this impacts the relationship between the U.S. and U.K., and, and specifically President Reagan and Prime Minister, Tha- Prime Minister Thatcher. Go ahead, Daniel.
2: Yeah, absolutely. This was one of the most difficult episodes, actually, in U.S.-U.K. relations during the Thatcher-Reagan years. And the reason that it was difficult is that Mrs. Thatcher actually felt that she had been Betrayed is probably not too strong a word by President Reagan. She felt that there'd been some some not just double dealings, but actually dishonesty. And it really sort of hurt her pride, I think. Um, And the reason for this, uh, we'll we'll get to the the tape in a minute, and you can hear some of it on the tape. But the background that one needs to understand to the Granada episode is that the United States um, decided to take military action to restore a government of Granada that had been deposed in a coup. But they decided to do this without talking to Mrs. Thatcher first. Um, And this did not go down at all well um, with Mrs. Thatcher. Um, One of the reasons for it is actually that there was a lot of poor staff work going on in terms of trying to inform her. What actually happened was on the Monday, which was October the 24th, 1983, this was the day that uh, military action was due to take place. And the first Mrs. Thatcher heard of it was a message, a cable that was sent to Number 10 Downing Street at around 7 p.m. her time. There was a cable from President Reagan, and Reagan said, as you're aware, there's a problem in Grenada essentially. And we are contemplating intervening. We'd love to hear your views. Well, Mrs. Thatcher, as it happened, wasn't in Number 10 at the time. She was out at dinner. And what dinner was she at? She was, ironically, she was at the farewell dinner for the US ambassador to the UK, John Lewis. And by the time that news of this message reached her, what had happened was that the dinner had actually finished. And as was customary in those days, the men had all retired to a separate room to enjoy port, cigars, brandy. And the women, which of course included Mrs. Thatcher, basically just the wives, and Mrs. Thatcher were left to make small talk while the men talked about the important business. Daniel, let me get this straight. You have the Prime Minister
1: of of England. Yes. In honor of the U.S. Ambassador, the Court of St. James, England. Yes. After dinner, the men retire to drink port, excluding the Prime Minister from that conversation. She's left doing, having chit-chat with the women. Um, all the while, there's uh, a message, a cable from the President of the
2: United States about Grenada that she hasn't gotten. Did I, did I get that right? Yes, pretty much, except she's, she's been told the contents of the, of the message by her staff. And so what does she want to do? I mean, what's the obvious thing to do in this scenario? is to ask the American ambassador, what, what on earth is going on? But of course she can't at this stage because he's locked in a room having port and cigars. So she's out making small talk with, with his wife, essentially, who obviously knows nothing about it. So finally, the men deign to emerge. Um, and Mrs. Thatcher, of course, immediately buttonholes button the ambassador, John Lewis, and says, look, look, what's going on? But of course, John Lewis knows absolutely nothing about it either so (laughs) this is not going very well. So she comes back to number 10, Downing Street, Um, three hours later she receives another cable from President Reagan, and this cable says, well, I've been thinking more about Granada and I've decided to intervene. So from her point of view, three hours earlier she was asked for her views, but her views were apparently of such little significance that Reagan has himself decided just three hours later to intervene without even hearing a peep from her. as you can imagine, she was she was not particularly happy by this, about this. Um, they actually had a phone call later that evening. Uh, a phone call was arranged, in which they didn't actually say very much. But one of Mrs. Thatcher's advisors recalled President Reagan sounding like, quote, a naughty schoolboy who'd been caught doing something that he shouldn't do. Uh, and all he said basically was, I'm sorry, Margot, it's too late. So let's,
1: let's go listen to this. And of course, Daniel, you found this clip uh, at the Reagan Library before, uh, before, before you found it I don't think anybody was aware of this recording so we'll go give it a listen we'll uh, have you uh, comment on it in about 17 seconds let so me just say
2: before you play it Roger just to make clear this uh, call is not the call I was referring to then this is a call that happened two days later oh. when there's an effort to, um, to calm the waters President Reagan yeah. is calling because he wants to calm the waters of Mrs. Patrick
0: hello Margaret
2: if I were there Margaret
0: I'd throw my hat in the door before I came in Listen, I'm. We regret very much the embarrassment that's been caused you, and I'd just like to tell you what the story is from our end out here.
2: So, so yeah, so there you have wonderful example of, of President Reagan's charm there, talking about throwing his hat in the door before he actually came in, which probably wasn't an expression that Mrs Thatcher was familiar <laughs> with at all. But nonetheless, you can hear the sort of the, the little. Um, little laughter in her voice there and the fact that, that she's briefly disarmed by this, by this lovely piece of charm from President Reagan. But the call goes on. And it turns out that she's really not very, not very happy and she's not very Yeah, sad. I don't think so Reagan's much. charm
1: worked here. I mean, she's yeah. very on message and focused. Let's, let's listen to the rest of this uh, for another uh, 30 seconds or so.
2: Let me just say before we do, Roger, that um, in the middle of the call, President Reagan tries to explain to her that the reason he didn't tell her because he was worried about a leak. He was worried it might leak from his end. It was all his end. It was nothing to do with her. He was worried it might leak, and he she thought that would appeal to her because she understood secrecy from the Falklands. But it didn't really work, and let's, let's play the end of a call now. This is just the end. Well,
0: there's a lot of work to do yet, Ron, still, isn't Oh, yes. Yeah, and... Uh, and it'll be very tricky. But I, as I say, I'm sorry for any embarrassment we caused you, but please understand it was just... Our fear of our own weakness over here with regard to secrecy. It's very kind of you to have Well, my pleasure.
1: Appreciate How is Nancy?
0: Just fine.
1: I must return to this
0: debate in the house. It's a bit tricky. Oh, all right. Yes. Go get him. Eat him alive. Goodbye. All right, bye.
1: <laughs> I mean, Daniel, as I listen to that. She basically says, now I have to clean up this mess in the parliament. I'm in the middle of debate. I don't know if it was actually she was truly debating at the time or if it was her way of saying, listen, you've caused enough trouble. You're a headache. I don't want to talk to you.
2: (laughs) Well, that's right. She was actually having a debate in, in the Commons, and it was actually very helpful that Reagan had called because she was able to then deploy that information against the Labour leader and say, when the Labour leader said, well, he's taken this action. President Reagan has taken this action without consulting you he was able to say, well, actually, I just happened to speak to her on the phone right now and, and, and we are at one sort of thing. But the other interesting thing at the end of that call, as you pointed out, is he again tries to turn on the charm there at the end. He says, oh, do get him, eat him alive. she <laughs> this, goodbye. She was not, shall we say, mollified by that stage, not mollified at all. Uh, a, a
1: wonderful bit of history. Uh, we thank you for uh, sharing it with the world and kind of rescuing it from the stacks of, of the archives there, Daniel. Yeah. Uh, We have a little bit of time left and I uh, so much ground to cover, but I I would like to jump to current events a bit Mm -hmm. and really give us a sense of British-American, kind of the US-UK relationship today. Uh, A little bit earlier, you and I were going back and forth uh, between an analogy I was drawing between Johnson and and Trump, uh, imperfect, and I think you agreed it was imperfect. But um, give us a sense of where
2: things stand today. One can never forget the history of the Anglo-American relationship and the special relationship. What we've seen recently is um, quite a bit of a, a dispute and debate over the actual title. The word special relationship is, is apparently not really in vogue in London. I think the reason for that is that it tends to give the impression of the British being needy because they're always wanting the President to use the term special relationship to show how special Britain is. Well, I think Johnson, of course, is now calling it the indestructible relationship or the deep and meaningful relationship. I think whatever you want to call it, there's no doubt that it has been and continues to be a particularly close and unique relationship. And the reason it continues to work so well today, I think, is that it's not just about the very top. It's not just about the relationship between the president and the prime minister, but it goes down on so so many layers, so many levels. And we're talking particularly amongst military and intelligence sharing and the degree to which the the staffs are integrated and work closely with each other, I think can't really be uh, overstated. And of course, it works also on an economic level. And of course, the culture, language, that's all very familiar to us. But I think the reason that's one of the reasons why it's endured. And the other reason is that it's from the beginning it's been based on shared values, and I don't think that there's any reason today, even when Britain and America may differ over means, they're often still the same on the ends and they're still the same on the shared values. the shared values haven't really changed and so I think that is underlying uh, the relationship the relationship today, which I, I think I think will continue
1: well indeed it transcends partisanship here in the United States and I think the same whether it's a labor or Tory government in the United Kingdom year after year, decade after decade. We do a survey uh, here at the Reagan Institute um, called the Reagan National Defense Survey. We focus a lot on national security questions, Uh, but in there, there are a variety of questions over uh, the view of the American people vis-a-vis our allies. Um, And it won't surprise you that the United Kingdom, year over year, we've done this for a few years now, uh, ranks kind of at the top. here are the numbers from February, 2021. Uh, 84% of Americans think of Great Britain as an ally, and that's mm. a strong ally or somewhat of an ally. Uh, the only other country that outperforms uh, Great Britain in that question is Canada. Right. Uh, Australia actually um, is also at 84%. Daniel, why are, we, why are you trailing Canada or do you wanna be trailing
2: Canada? Is this a good result? I think uh, uh, proximity may be everything in that in that survey. I think um, uh, Canada is certainly closer than, than the United Kingdom. So maybe it's uh, uh, more on the mind. But um, I think if we're up there with Canada, then we're doing pretty well. Um, so uh, where was France on your list? I, well, don't have to worry about that. <laughs> <laughs> worry. All right, let's jump to our lightning
1: round, Daniel. This has been a really wonderful conversation. Thank you for giving us such depth and insight into... Uh, Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher um, and the Reagan-Thatcher relationship and more broadly the US-UK relationship. I'll still call it the special relationship despite what uh, Boris wants to call it. I, I can't even recall what it was. It seemed like too long of a word and it won't catch. My prediction, Boris's designation won't catch and we'll go back to calling it special relationship. Uh, that's one not expert view. Here's the lightning round. Share with us your favorite book and speech and quote from President Reagan. We'll take all three if you got it, or
2: two Absolutely. or one if you don't. Of course. Um, I think the book, I, I just, I cannot get away from, from the president's diary, the Reagan Diaries as my favorite book um, on, on the presidency. And the reason is that I love historical documents, but because the diaries, unlike some, were clearly not written for publication, they have a candor to them and an honesty that I think is so, so valuable. And, you know in a, from time to time they don't tell you very much other than what the president did that day but then the next day there's suddenly this great insight into how he's feeling for example about um his hardline advisors on the soviet union and how unhappy he is with those uh, and how he's actually feeling so for me you have to go back to basics
1: uh, just before we move on to the next one I, I i um i think in all the time we've done Reaganism, i think you're the first to highlight the president's diary and i I'm, I'm with you i think it's remarkable especially the discipline and this oh, yeah. is the way in which he captures so much every day, which some could you know, brush aside as lacking sophistication. But in my mind, it captures a, a, a brilliant ability to kind of organize complex things and, and, and kind of get to it in, in a clear way. Um, okay. With that broad endor- endorsement, Daniel, have you seen other biographies of, of heads of state that kind of rival Reagan in that regard?
2: Do you mean biographies or do you mean diaries? I meant diaries, thank you. Okay. Um, I think, I mean, the, the length of the Reagan diaries and the, the exhaustive quality that they, they have, it really holds them out, I think, among, among many others. I, I can't, I mean, there are others, but I think the Reagan diaries are, are head and above, shoulders above the rest, really. Most people who have diaries tend to use them to inform their biographies rather than actually publishing them purely as diaries. But I think, Reagan's hold their own as pure diaries. I have destroyed (laughs) the lightning round. This is definitely not lightning, but we learned from it, Daniel,
1: so thank you for uh, that discussion of the uh, diary. All right, share with us a speech and a quote from President Reagan.
2: Yes, Um, I think for speech I would have to go with his address to the British Parliament in June 1982 um, for two reasons. One is for the obvious reason, I suppose, that he really shows such insight and foresight into what's going on in the Cold War and foresees the end um, of Marxist-Leninism as, as he talks about it ending up on the ash heap of history. And I think that was remarkable to come up with that in June 1982 when uh, many people didn't see what was happening in the Soviet Union, but Reagan did. Um, and I think Mrs. Thatcher shared that to some degree, but I think Reagan was ahead of her in seeing, in seeing the way that was heading. So for that reason, I would go with that speech. But I would also, sorry, go on, well, he
1: saw me want to intercede again in the lightning round. The Westminster speech is something we focus along a lot here, and, and agree with that designation. Did Prime Minister Thatcher like the speech? Did she think uh, President Reagan was onto
2: something, or did she come around to those ideas later? Um, I think she definitely liked the speech. She was very fond of the speech. But the reason that she actually liked the speech was different, which is the second point I was coming on to. The only time that the speech was applauded, and this is remarkable, is when President Reagan spoke about the Falklands. And this was June 1982, so there was, the conflict was actually ongoing. Military action was taking place when, when Reagan gave the speech. Um, and um, he talked about um, soldiers, British troops, who were fighting not merely over real estate, but over ideas. And, and, and I think that was very powerful, because it meant that finally, in her view, President Reagan got it. He understood what was going on, and he was very much there with her, completely on
1: side. The Falklands was a fight for freedom.
2: Um, yeah, great. Give us your favorite quote. Well, I know it's in your title sequence, but I, I can't really get away from Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. I, I think it's just it's such an iconic quote, and it was so it was so bold at the time, it went against so many of his advisors who were saying you can't possibly do this, and yet it was pure vintage Reagan, and it was Thatcher too. One of the interesting things is that. A few a month or so earlier, Mrs. Thatcher had given her own talk, and she said the same thing, but in very more gentle Mrs. Thatcherish, not gentle, but but more refined way. It would be very good if if uh, the Soviets were to take down that wall, and that would really show that show us that people are serious. <laughs> Cut the Reagan, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. So, so what we've learned here is that
1: Prime Minister Thatcher said it first, but didn't quite <laughs> say it like an American.
2: But not, not, not in the same way. Not in the same way, Roger. It took, it took President Reagan to do that. I think. Daniel
1: collings thank you so much for joining the show today. We hope to have you back. Great conversation.
2: Yeah, I've loved it, Roger. Thanks so much.